king, modesty would be a sign of weakness. Portuguese Nobel Prize winner, Jose Saramago. History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and like many other people, I've been watching more films about kings and queens since the passing of Queen Elizabeth II last week. It's not a new thing for me, though. As an American who gets a new leader every four or eight years, the monarchy is something that's always fascinated and intrigued me. George Washington had the chance to be a king, and he passed it up. I wonder if he could have seen into the 21st century if he would have made the same choice. Heck, he might have decided to stay British. In any case, I've been watching more of them this week, and I thought I'd give you a few of my favorites. And let me stress the word favorites. These types of episodes always spark debate over which films are best, which isn't always the same thing. You really can't debate someone's personal preference. Well, you can but you'd be kind of a jerk. I'd actually make the case that several of these are among the best films ever made, and not just about kings, queens, monarchies, or history. Some even have Academy Awards that back that view up, though invoking the Oscars to defend my point feels odd, given how often they've gotten it so terribly wrong. Strange bedfellows and all that. Well, the five listed here are specifically feature films. I didn't even consider The Tudors or the Helen Mirren miniseries Elizabeth I, both of which are excellent, or The Crown, which I honestly haven't watched yet. There are some films that might have made my list, that are, but I haven't seen them yet, like, unforgivably, The King's Speech. All that said, here are my Fab Five, in the order they were released. Beckett, from 1964. I watched this one again two nights ago, and it's still as good as ever. Beckett tells the tale of the titanic struggle between King Henry II of England and his one-time best friend, Archbishop of Canterbury Thomas Beckett, over who will rule the church in England. The crown versus church thing continued to be an issue until Henry VIII put put a stop to it by putting himself, himself in charge of both. But that's still six Henrys away from this film's time. Richard Burton, who plays Beckett, and Peter O'Toole, who plays King Henry, both received Best Actor nominations. I think they unfortunately split the vote, with the Oscar going to Rex Harrison for his role in My Fair Lady. Burton's good, but O'Toole is magnificent, and he really should have won the Oscar. A Man for All Seasons, from 1966. The story of Sir Thomas More's conscientious stand against King Henry VIII is worth watching for Paul Schofield's performance alone. He won a Tony Award for his portrayal of the role on stage and an Oscar for the film. And Orson Welles, Susanna York, and a very young John Hurt all give stellar performances as well. But it's Robert Shaw's sometimes comically unhinged take on King Henry VIII that steals the show. This may be the most flawless historical film I've ever seen. The Man Who Would Be King from 1975. 
It's not easy to overshadow Michael Caine in his prime, unless you're Sean Connery in his prime. I'm surprised the two of them together on screen in a film directed by John Huston that's an adaptation of a short story by Rudyard Kipling didn't just tear a hole in the fabric of the universe. It's the story of two British soldiers in 1880s India who set off to become kings of Kafiristan in modern-day Afghanistan. Houston had been trying to make this film for 20 years with no luck. Some potential pairings during that stretch included Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, and finally Paul Newman and Robert Redford, with none of them ever working out. Bless his soul, Paul Newman suggested Kane and Connery as the right duo. Houston agreed, and our lives are all better for it. The Return of the King from 2003. And yes, I realize this is not an historical film. I also realize that Aragorn technically isn't crowned until the last 30 minutes of the 725-hour spectacle that is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But he's actually the king from the get-go even all the way back in the Fellowship of the Ring when he's sitting in the prancing pony, smoking, reading, and swilling ale while he waits for the hobbits to do something stupid. Throughout all three films, he's busy doing kingly things while all Frodo ever seems to do is walk. And he's a bigger king than I'd ever be because I absolutely would make the hobbits bow to me at the end. This one also has a bonus king in Theoden who's also pretty cool as well. We wrap up this list appropriately with The Queen from 2006. I put off watching this one for a long time, even though I adore Helen Mirren. I assumed it was going to be a hatchet job on Queen Elizabeth II, designed to pull in all the Princess Diana worshippers. Then I read that the Queen herself had praised Mirren's portrayal, even inviting her to dinner at Buckingham Palace, so I gave it a chance. I'm glad I did because Mirren is amazing and completely deserved the Best Actress Oscar she won for the role. It's a serious, nuanced look at a pivotal moment for Elizabeth and the monarchy itself. Michael Sheen is also outstanding as Tony Blair, especially in a scene where he dresses down his staff for their constant disrespect of Queen Elizabeth. Seriously, watch it. You'll get chills. It wasn't easy narrowing my favorite films about kings and queens down to five. Monty Python and the Holy Grail was just barely edged out, but ten would have stretched it to the point that some of my favorites would have been ridiculed as unwatchable. All I'll say about that is Clive Owen made a fine King Arthur, and anything with Kira Knightley is worth watching. That's our episode for today. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. I want to take a minute to let everyone know about something that I spoke about in an episode. It was pretty much the entire episode a few days ago. So if you're hearing it again, it's actually something I'm going to be talking about for the next few weeks at least. I receive sponsors on this podcast. It's part of how I'm able to be able to continue to do it because I'm a self-employed author and podcaster. Until recently, the requirement to be eligible for sponsorship was that you have 100 unique Spotify listeners every 60 days 
and produce one episode every 60 days. The episodes have not been a problem. Obviously, I put out an episode almost every day. Unique listeners on Spotify, I'm sitting at about 300, 325, I think, as of today. The problem that I'm encountering, I hate to say problem, but it is a problem, is about 80% at least of my listeners are on Apple Podcasts, not on Spotify. And Spotify doesn't count those towards that total. The new total that they recently announced is it has to be a thousand unique listeners every 60 days on the Spotify platform. So I'm asking everyone, I'm pleading with everyone, jump over in the next two weeks and play one episode of the Revisionist History Podcast on the Spotify platform. The cutoff date for eligibility is the 22nd of each month. So I need to hit that thousand number. Now I'm going to keep I'm going to keep doing episodes, but if the sponsorship is removed, it's going to be a lot more difficult for me to continue to do them as often as I do, simply because if there's no revenue coming in, I'll have to switch my efforts over to other things where revenue is coming in. As everybody knows, times are hard right now. I appreciate everybody who's done that already. I appreciate everybody who listens faithfully, and I hope you have a great day.